1: Matthew will tell the story so as to make it fulfill prophecy, even if it is ludicrous. And so Matthew is describing Jesus riding two animals at the same time into Jerusalem. You can find paintings of Jesus side saddle on a big donkey with his feet resting on a small donkey. Hey everybody, I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and we combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things, Dan?
2: Things are great. Uh, you awesome. know, by the time our friends hear this, this will have already happened. But I am, I'm fixing to go to a, a religious celebration Okay. Uh, soon. Uh, I am, tomorrow, tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, I take off for Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Nice, uh, which is vaguely related to <laughs> Lent and Shrove Tuesday and all of uh-huh. that stuff. Uh-huh. I will not be celebrating any of those things, but nope. I will be celebrating some amazing, amazing Cajun food, yeah, and some uh, some pa- parades and such. So I, yeah. I'm
1: stoked. I'm excited. Come back with no beads. You want to have given them all away, right? That's the that's the point. I understand. I don't. Know. Uh, I,
2: I you know. I I am bead neutral. I will say. Okay. I am. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I am. I I have no plans for beads one way or t'other. So
1: okay. Well, uh, New Orleans is a wonderful city. Uh, the first time I was there was way back in two thousand nine. F- flew off to Oxford with my family, and a month later came back for a conference taking place in New Orleans, and we had just a wonderful time. In fact, I think I had. We went to find a a restaurant downtown New Orleans on Thanksgiving. Mm. Uh, we found a little hole in the wall. Best mac and cheese I've ever had. Love in it. My entire life. Yeah.
2: Love it. Just don't go in August.
1: <laughs>
2: it's very it's very hot and muggy.
1: Though. Oh, I that's can awesome. imagine. Yeah. No. I'm, um, <laughs> I uh, I don't like when the mosquitoes could carry you away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's
2: that's less appealing.
1: Yeah. I uh, I scratch those places off my list when I'm looking for a place to go.
2: Speaking of less appealing, yes. Uh, today's show's an interesting one. We're diving headfirst into one of the one of the roughest things to uh, to square in the Bible,
1: and that's uh, and that's saying something. Cause that's we've, saying something. We've, it, it, we've it, engaged yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of rough topics uh, yeah, on the show so far.
2: Yeah, but this one's real, real tricky. Uh, we're gonna talk genocide, friends, okay. uh, and uh, that's gonna be fun. And if we have time for it at the end, we'll do a little sorbet uh, course, a little palate cleanser, a little palate cleanser, and we'll uh, we'll, g- we'll we'll give you Jesus's uh, petting zoo, uh,
1: <laughs> a fun so, story, a a confusing sometimes story, yes, about uh, Jesus riding animals. So, yes, indeed. So. Yes.
2: So stick around for that. Uh, but first, let's dive in with, with, with genocide. Um, that's always fun. It's always a delight <laughs> when we do that. Yeah.
1: It uh, comes up a lot, though.
2: Yeah. And, and so uh, first, I, I guess we should start with just like, what are some of the really rough passages that we're talking about when it comes to this? Because there are a couple.
1: Well, the, I think the main one we're looking at is, and we find it scattered in a, in a few different places, but we're talking about the conquest of Canaan uh, right. at the hands of the Israelites. Following the 40 years in the desert, Moses is gone, Joshua is now leading the Israelites, and they are commanded to go in and take over the land and not just drive out the, uh, the current inhabitants, but commit genocide and uh kill everything that breathes. Man Yeah, and woman, we're not child, just talking animals. about yeah, the animals. That that was the part that was like Yeah.
2: Man, that we're getting rough. Like And there's a,
1: and there's a, a logic to this. First thing I want to point out is that um most of the the stuff that kind of champions this genocidal Um, appropriation of this land is coming from the Deuteronomistic literature. So this is something that's being written toward the the end of the 7th century BCE and is having layers added to it over the next couple of centuries. And they're looking back on something that uh, ostensibly happened multiple centuries before, and they're treating this as basically a human sacrifice to purge the land. And that's that's something that that is sometimes lost in this. But the idea of killing even the animals, destroying all the goods, um, man, woman, child, all everything must go, is this is how you purge the wickedness of the Canaanites from the land. It's basically you must sacrifice all of the life in order to purge the land so that it is fit for you to come in, and then be holy.
2: It is uh, a wholesale, it, it is such a, a large scale view of everything. Like, not just, I'm not just talking about like you have to cleanse the land, but like just the concept that there is such a thing as a wicked entire group of people. Mm-hmm. Like, not a one of them is worth saving. Not a one, like literally, we can condemn the entire group. And this happens several times throughout the Bible. But there's this this all or nothing thinking that pervades all of this. Mm-hmm. That is, I, I mean, I find it very disturbing.
1: Yeah. This, I, these ideas. Absolutely, and and these are pretty ancient ideas. It's uh, there's a pretty uh, ethnocentric perspective driving a lot of this, where it's us against them. Yeah. And we're we're out to preserve and protect our community. And everything on the outside of our community is potentially and usually an enemy that we need to defeat, because it's either we defeat them or they defeat us Right uh, in this perspective. And uh, so, yeah, you've got this idea of uh, cleansing the land through this human sacrifice. And as the, the Bible progresses, we'll talk about this a little later on, but that perspective is forced to change. Circumstances compel the biblical authors to renegotiate their understanding of the relationship of Israel to the nations around them. And I think it's a fascinating uh rhetorical innovation that takes place. But for the time being, yeah, this is uh, this is pitting us against them. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And you even see in, in Genesis 18, Abraham is negotiating with with Adonai, the god of Israel, regarding Sodom. Gomorrah. And mm. do you recall uh, what the negotiation is about? Oh gosh. I do <laughs> we talked about it and I was so delighted by it. Uh no, I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay, so um so Abraham's like, Man, you're not gonna destroy the whole city. Come on, and he's Oh right, he so what if what if there are 50 righteous people. That's right. I do remember. And God that. says, "I will not destroy it for 50 righteous." And then he goes down, down, down and 10 righteous people, 5 righteous people. Yes. And and Abraham says, "I or God says, "I will not destroy it for the sake of 5 righteous people." And then this is why the story is told the way it is in Genesis 19. Lot goes in there, uh needs a place t- or um Lot is there. The angels, excuse me, go in there, need a place to stay. Uh, Lot brings them to his home. How many righteous people are in Lot's home? And, <laughs> and here's, where, here's where there's a distinction. Full personhood here is only attributed to men. Oh, right. The women right. are not attributed full so personhood. So the daughters
2: and the wife don't count.
1: Right. It is Lot and it is two uh, men who are betrothed to his daughters, not yet married, but betrothed, uh-huh. which adds up to three <clears throat> righteous people. And so guess what? That's not five. And so <laughs> the city goes down. And, and that's kind of—you uh, You mentioned that this uh, this kind of framing, this characterizing everyone as fully, entirely, unilaterally wicked is kind of on display— in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because yeah. Abraham's like, surely there are five. And it turns out there are only three. And God says, get them out because well, and everybody else Well, it's not just that.
2: I mean, you go back to Genesis 6 through 8, there's a very famous uh, story of everyone being wicked. Right. And that's everyone being wicked. <laughs> that is yeah. literally everyone that isn't on that boat. Which, of course, we're talking which, about the flood. We're talking about right, Noah. Right, yeah.
1: And if you didn't know, Genesis 6 through 8 uh, narrates the the flood. And um, it kind of highlights the rhetorical nature of these stories. These are not real-world circumstances. Right. These are people telling stories. Every last one of them was wicked. It's it's like... You know, now we tend to give nuance to villains in books and movies and things like, you know, you've got uh, you've got Black Panther where the bad guy, a lot of people are like, he's kind of making sense. Right. Right. And like you want you like the villains that are closer to um, kind of sympathy and empathy and stuff are more compelling villains. But for a long time. It was, you know, when, when Superman started up, it was good guys and bad guys. Yeah. You were all good or you were all bad. It was black and white. And so uh, that's the the storytelling that we have in the ancient world. They're all wicked. And yeah. and that kind of plays into some of the apologetics about this as well. When we talk about, oh, all the Canaanites, men, women, children, newborn babies, they're all going to die. And apologists right. will say, well, they were all wicked, or if they weren't yet wicked, There was no way they were going to be anything other than (laughs) wicked. Look, which means this is when you've got DNA level wicked. There's nothing you can do. Like that's baked in. Yeah, it's (laughs) uh, you. (laughs) It's prior restraint. uh, (laughs) Did not play, uh, uh, anciently. So, um, and so, yeah. Some of the apologetics kind of play into the way everything is represented in black and white terms, which very clearly shows these are not real world world circumstances, this is rhetoric that is being used. But let's let's get into some of the actual stories about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, so I've got uh, a few different examples that I looked up that I tried to sort out you know, what they were. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I don't understand how the timeline works very
1: well. I don't understand how some of these, uh, the biblical authors didn't understand either. So, and I don't
2: understand how these, uh, stories interact with each other. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're the same stories or if they're different stories. So you can help me out with this. The first one that I wanted, that I found was, uh, Joshua six. This is, this is Joshua taking Jericho. Uh, uh, and this is where, you know, the, uh, in Joshua six, the uh, you know the 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 people all march around the city of Jericho with six days in a row, and they're blowing their trumpets and everything, and then they all shout, and then it's time to go in, and uh, and and you know the walls come down, uh, mm-hmm. come a tumbling down. They um, come a tumbling as the great down. great poet once said, "Yeah, that's right." Um, those famous fabled walls of Jericho, uh, and then. <laughs> Literally, and then they say, for the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Yes. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messenger. So they send in spies. This prostitute helped the spies out, so she gets to live. Everyone else is to be killed.
1: Right. Not just That's, killed, devoted to destruction. Right, and that um, seems
2: at, like just like a supporting of your thing, which is which is that this is a a ritual sacrifice.
1: It is, and this is uh, the word in Hebrew is harem. Uh, excuse me, uh, harem is uh, how you would h uh, e r e m, and this is not unique to biblical Hebrew. Um, there's a a stele called the the Mesha inscription or the Mesha stele or the Moabite stele from uh, around 840 BCE. And it's written in Moabite, a a sibling language of biblical Hebrew. And the king Mesha talks about devoting cities to destruction using this word, um, which is, is basically saying, we're not taking the goods for us, we're destroying everything. We're just going to pile it all up and burn it, mm. and that is to—it's kind of a, a bit of costly signaling to it's the deity. Very costly. Yes, that's a, that's a lot of
2: that's a lot of good stuff that they're just getting yeah. rid of.
1: And and it's a way to say this is—we um, are just destroying this to show the deity that we're doing this because the deity said we're not doing it so that we can benefit financially from. Uh, these uh, going to war. And then you have, the, there's a famous story of uh, Khan who engages in a little five-finger discounting of some <laughs> of the material and hides it. And then uh, God says, oh, I, I told you you guys to devote this to destruction and one of you did not. And then Joshua's like, ah, crap. Okay, we got to figure out who did this. And, um, <laughs> and then they, they whittle it down through this, um, this kind of ordeal uh, thing. And God reveals that it is Achan who is responsible for this. And so he and his whole family and all the goods that they stole basically get swallowed up by the earth. Uh, oh, wow. because, because he was going against the devotion of all of this to destruction. Right. Uh, so this, this is a principle that is in circulation in the area around Israel uh, when this kind of thing is going on. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's basically a ritual sacrifice of everything. Right. Okay, there you go. Uh, let's go to,
2: I, I'm, I guess I'm going backwards to, uh, to Deuteronomy 7. Uh, okay. Which is, which is uh, sort of, it's got a command in it. The mm-hmm. Lord is talking to, who is the Lord talking to? I don't know who. Uh, maybe you know who the Lord is talking to. Well,
1: normally uh, God is talking to uh, Moses in in Deuteronomy. Okay,
2: so we'll just say Moses for now. Uh, And Deuteronomy, so I'll skip around a little bit. Um, Basically, uh, he says, uh, well, just at the very top of of the chapter, he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're about to enter and occupy... And he clears away many nations before you, and he lists them off. The Hittites, the Gigashites, the gir- no, Girgashites, the Amorites. Like the, the Gigachads. The Gigachads. Um. The Canaanites <laughs> is in there. The Parasites, not to be confused with parasites, The Hivites, and uh, with apologies to Homer Simpson, the Jebusites. <laughs> uh, Praise Jebus. I don't even believe in Jebus. Um, <laughs> So basically, he says, it says seven nations more more numerous and mighty than you. Uh, skipping a little bit. Uh, then you must utterly destroy them. Mm-hmm. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole lot of destroying. That's, that's yes. seven different nations. So like we hear talk about the Canaanites a lot but uh nobody's mentioning the 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 Amorites or the Girgashites. So what's going on there?
1: So th- this is actually uh a variant use of this term Canaanite because uh it becomes kind of a blanket term for everybody who occupies the land that they refer to as Canaan, which is basically okay. all the land that they're inhabiting. But in in some usage it is a subgroup uh of uh, the broader categories, but like the the Jebusites, this is the people who are occupying ostensibly the city of Jerusalem until that's taken by David, which is dead center of uh, the whole land of Canaan. And so, okay. to distinguish the Jebusites from the Canaanites um, is a little uh, misrepresentative, according to the the broader use of the term. And so, you've got the Deuteronomistic. Author here, Um, probably just trying to come up with seven names Mm. because seven represents completion, perfection. So if you can destroy the seven nation, um, I I won't sing the song because I understand we can get in trouble for singing (laughs) the the white stripes. Yes, the white stripes Uh, suck. But if you destroy the seven nations as God has commanded, that is you're perfectly fulfilling. Uh, God's requirements, and then you've perfectly cleansed and purged uh, the land. And so that's what that strikes me as. And again, this is coming from the period of Josiah or after, Mm. uh, which is looking back almost a thousand years on what they imagined happened. And so it's kind of constructing a golden age deep in the past where we were the champions who came in and we were going to route everybody. Okay. Um, And that's not the way um, anything turns out according to um, (laughs) the rest of the text that we have. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign
2: correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia.
1: We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana
2: Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches April 9th. Well, why don't you look? What I've got is a whole bunch of different scriptural references. To the same kind of idea. So will you okay. just tell us the story uh, that we're referencing here and just sort of give us the, the oh, broad man. strokes?
1: Well, like you said, there what? are different stories. So okay. when we look at, um, and we talked a little bit, we've done an episode on on the priestly uh, source or account yeah. or document. Um, right now we're in D, we're in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is one of the main sources that that came together to create the Pentateuch, but the Deuteronomistic project extends well beyond the Pentateuch. It includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And so the majority of, of all of that is being brought together by the Deuteronomists who are influencing how these stories are being told. And so when we go into Joshua and Judges, we're actually going to see the Deuteronomists um, preserving some earlier accounts while also including their own accounts. and And this is where I think one of the most interesting things about the story of the conquest is that you have this command in in, um, Deuteronomy 7, but if you go down to verse 22, it says, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little. You will not be able to make a quick end of them. Otherwise, the wild animals would become too numerous for you. And you see this in a couple of different places where it says, we can't just kill everybody because then the land is empty you have nobody to curate it it's going to take too long for you to um you know to get your people out there and so the land the wild animals will just take over so it, it's kind of this weird rationalization for yeah. why it's actually going to take a while for this conquest to happen and so Leave in some those of the guys
2: st- there until you build up enough people that you can actually take over the land instead of the animals coming in yeah and-
1: it's told in a, in a bunch of different ways, but you repeatedly get these, like, pathetic rationalizations for why something didn't go the way God commanded it. Mm. Um, and so a, a good example is is uh, Judges 1.19. Um, the Lord was with Judah. So in, in Judges 1, what we have is, um, okay, so... Everybody's going out and they're dispossessing the the Canaanites of this land. The Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Right. And so God is is with Judah, but it's like, God's like, ah, you know what? We're going to have to regroup because I didn't know they had chariots of iron. (laughs) That's that's not fair. This is above my pay grade. I call Um, time out. That's not yeah. okay. And and then you've got that other one, and it's like, look, the wild animals would take over. There's nothing we can do about that. I yeah. mean the wild animals, they don't listen to me. Um, <laughs> and uh so you get stories of they killed everything that breathed, and then you get stories of so they didn't quite kill everything that breathed. And right. um you see kind of the starkest contrast uh between like Joshua ten. This is where uh I I think this is the most striking. Uh starting in, in verse forty. So Joshua defeated the whole land, the hill country, so that's the northern hill country, and the Negev, so that's the, the desert in the south, and the lowland and the slopes, that's the Shvela, so that's everything running from the western hill country down to the coastal plain. Uh, and all their kings, he left no one remaining but utterly utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua defeated them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Joshua took all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And we have something similar at the end of uh, the very next chapter. Uh, What do we got At the time Joshua came and wiped out the Anakim From the hill country From Hebron, from Debir, from Anab And from all the hill country of Judah And from all the hill country of Israel Joshua So that's north and south Yeah Joshua utterly destroyed them with their towns None of the Anakim was left in the land of the Israelites Some remained only in Gaza In Gath and in Ashdod So the Philistines are still there So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And now I'm looking at at this on page 356 of my SBL study Bible. Mm -hmm. And then chapter 13 begins on on the very next page. So the facing page. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land still remains to be possessed. Oh, So all the land was previously possessed, and now suddenly there's a bunch of stuff that is not possessed. And we can go to um, uh, elsewhere, Joshua 17. We have this uh, statement, let's see, verses 12 and 13. Yet the Manasites could not take possession of those towns, but the Canaanites continued to live in that land. But when the Israelites grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. And we have a a number of uh, references, uh, even in Judges 1, to this idea that they didn't quite do what the text said they did. Mm. Uh, When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not, in fact, drive them out. Huh. And so we I I think what we have here is this rhetoric about this this um legendary idealized past where we came in and we just wiped them out. Right. It, it was epic. And then you've got others who are like, dude, they're still around. <laughs> like, we just, have you guys and, noticed
2: something weird? Yeah, like uh, we about still that story? live
1: around Canaanites. <laughs> and uh and and there are apologetic attempts to say, "Well, no, when he said all the land, they're actually just talking about the land that goes from this side of this hill, and then it is this includes this city, but doesn't include." And and people try to parse it apart to right. try to insist that it is still perfectly accurate, and it doesn't work. Um, it it requires inventing scenarios that are not in evidence. Right. In order to insist, well, it's not impossible right. that all of these agree, and and so we've got a collection of conflicting texts, uh, and and I would argue that the the genocidal ideal is something that is being invented in a much later time period. And is there any like uh, archaeological evidence that something like this happened? You see, you see a lot of destruction layers, what uh, they usually, um, they'll call them destruction layers, conflagrations uh, is, is the $2 word for this, uh, in a lot of the sites that are mentioned in these narratives, but they don't line up with the timeline and they don't fit any broader um, conquest narrative. Okay. Uh, and so most likely there were just fighting that went on in these places and sometimes towns got destroyed. And yeah. um it <laughs> would be a pity for something to happen <laughs> to this for beautiful something to happen. To city. yeah, um, real nice t- real nice town you Amorites <laughs> got here. <laughs> but like Jericho, you know they, depending on how you date uh, Moses and the Exodus and everything like that, there's a window of time in which Jericho was supposed to have been destroyed. and archaeologically, it doesn't seem to have been inhabited huh. uh, anywhere in that window. Okay, And there were walls that were knocked down before that window begins, and then they built it up again after that window. But during that window, um, it was either uninhabited, or if it was inhabited, it was not fortified. Well, that would Uh, make it easier for
2: Joshua. If if there's no one in there... You can take that city pretty easy.
1: Yeah, and well, th- that's probably just him trying to make sure that his budget doesn't de- get decreased for the following year. It was right? like, look, we had it took <laughs> us seven days. We had to, and we, you know, the all the costs. It just we need this much money next year as well. Um, when in reality, they were like, hey man, you can have it. This is yeah. <laughs> um, there's not even a wall. Um, so the conquest narrative is not supported by the archaeological data. Okay. And in within the history of scholarship, you started off, everybody kind of just presumed the historicity of these accounts. In fact, the whole field of biblical archaeology began with the saying is a spade in one hand and a Bible in the other, where mm-hmm. they would go try to dig up these places that were mentioned in the Bible to prove the historicity of the Bible. And as it progressed and as methodologies were refined and matured and as people... Um, figured out how to treat this more, uh, as a science than an apologetic endeavor, we developed better principles and we got to the point where this was no longer tenable, the idea of this conquest. And so you had a bunch of yeah, theories the, pop the up. The
2: maturation of the science was a bad
1: idea. it was a clear (laughs) well at least for for uh for the apologetic project yes it was uh it was self-defeating um and so you had these other theories that popped up peaceful infiltration uh that the the uh israelites coming out of egypt peacefully infiltrated the land and this is how they account for uh well this is why the canaanites were still around it was because they came in and were like hey man can we set up camp over here. Nobody's yeah. over in this part. of. We're okay. Um, and uh, then you had this other uh, idea of a peasant revolt. It's like, well, peaceful infiltration isn't violent enough to account for um, all the violence in the text. So let's have a peasant revolt where it's it's local people. They're not coming from outside, they're from inside, but they just decide, you know, we're not going to take it anymore and rise up and we're going right. to defeat um, the overlords. And, and these days, Uh, I think most scholars, most archaeologists would say none of those really work. It's probably a bunch of small-scale things kind of took place across the whole spectrum. Probably some people conquered some towns. Probably there was some uh, peaceful infiltration. But for the most part, the nation of Israel and the tribes of Israel were already living in the land, and it was just a matter of slowly— kind of developing a concept of some kind of identity, a shared identity that then became a nation. And later down the road, they were like, well, where did this nation come from? Well, let's say it came from conquest. Um, so it's it's the development of a a mythos, a myth, a foundation myth about where we came from and why we have a right to this land. And unfortunately, genocide was the foundation of uh of this myth.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um
1: you know, we've talked
2: about apologetics for various things. I I read a bunch of apologetics about just that the genocidal nature of of this conquest. Mm-hmm. Um uh my favorite of which or rather my, the one that I'm absolutely giddy about presenting to you <laughs> begins with the f- with <laughs> i'll just start reading okay uh this is from
1: and i have not heard this yet you mentioned no, no, no. you were going to spring I'm, something I'm on gonna me i'm going to spring so. it
2: on you this is from tabletalkmagazine.com uh, that old that old canard okay yeah, um, i don't, I don't know that one um i'll skip down to my to the one that i know you're going to respond the best to the this one I think you'll find this convincing. Mm. Merriam-Webster defines genocide as <laughs> strike one. Strike one. The the the, the
1: defining of words uh, and the use of Merriam-Webster too. Right. Like exactly. Was, yes. Uh, like this the, is a sacrament talk that somebody. Yes. Exactly. <laughs>
2: Yeah, please don't start any talk. Uh, your, if your <laughs> TED talk starts with Webster's dictionary, define anyway. This they say that it defines genocide as the deliberate killing of people who belong to a particular racial, political, or cultural group. Now I find mm-hmm. that to be a fairly useful way of talking about this, uh, but this this apologetic goes on to say, basically, uh, they say, well. Uh, Genocide, defined in this way, it is the intentional destruction of a people, uh, of a people group, because of their race, politics, culture, or religion. And since you can't say that the destruction of Canaan was because of their race, uh, the culture, or religion, uh, then it's not, it's not genocide, so we win. <laughs> it's it literally, they basically say, see, it wasn't because of race, so you can't call it genocide.
1: The other thing that I wanted to. to but refer- it was. Right. Well, okay. So
2: talk about that first.
1: Okay. So um, race anciently meant uh, your ethnic group. Which Mm -hmm. it could mean just what language you spoke. It could mean what city you lived in. It could be, uh, you know, what society you identified with. It wasn't based on skin color. That is an invention of medieval European hubris. But uh, it absolutely was because they're saying wipe out the Jebusites. So that's an ethnic designation. Right. Therefore, uh, and, and it's not saying, uh, the text is not saying, I want to wipe them out because they're Jebusites and I just, uh, you know, a Jebusite stole my girlfriend in high school. It's, it is it um, is identifying the object of this genocide via their ethnic designation, which would right. still qualify even if uh, one were um, so uh, senseless as to accept a dictionary definition as as adequately delineating the concept um right. but it, it it's still saying it <laughs> it's kind of like how apologists are going to respond about uh what Trump did to uh Miss Carol mm. They're go, they'll say hey 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 it wasn't, they didn't find it wasn't rape according to the official state definition of rape because she didn't know if it was one thing or the or the other. Right, and yeah. um, and it's like, okay, he still sexually yeah. assaulted her. Yeah, against you, you her haven't will. gotten
2: you haven't gotten yeah. very far in uh in ameliorating this issue, and yeah. and I think that that was my issue with this apologetic was that like even if you can find a way to skirt around the problem of feeling icky about the word genocide being yeah. applied to something that the good guys in the bible were supposed to have done you still haven't addressed the problem of the good guys in the bible yeah. doing something that is at least by most modern standards morally reprehensible
1: yeah absolutely it it doesn't it doesn't resolve the issue it doesn't make uh the deity any less genocidal it just says well uh technically it wouldn't be genocide it would just be the mass murder of an ethnic group be, um you know even if we yeah. accepted the argument <laughs> that it wasn't based yeah. <laughs> on their ethnic identity which it explicitly was yeah so um yeah that's that doesn't work at all and one that i've heard i don't know if you were going to get to this one but the one that that makes my blood boil is the one that uh, is used to respond to the idea that, uh, you know, in, in Numbers, we have um, the uh, the statement where they're, uh, I think it's the, is it the Ammonites? That they're, um, Numbers 31, I believe we have, yeah. Moses became angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you allowed all the women to live? These women here on Balaam's advice made the Israelites act treacherously against the Lord in the affair of Peor, so that the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man by sleeping with him. But all the young girls who have not known a man by sleeping with him, keep alive for yourselves. And, and this is basically saying we are taking captive the virgin women as sex slaves. As spoils of war. Yes. and And folks will say, well— Better that than just being left alone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know the and other art the other argument is well well they were the only ones who were not guilty of seducing all the Israelites in this affair of Peor. which actually never says anyone ever seduced anyone. Uh, but they'll say, so it's the virgins who are not guilty of that, so they're keeping them alive because they're actually the only innocent ones. Even though it also says to kill all the males, old and young, and they were not guilty of any such thing either.
2: Yeah, two-year-olds are, it's, it's hard to find a two-year-old guilty of anything, really. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: um, and, and so the, the apologetics here are, are despicable. Because they, they try to take something like this and use comparative measurements to try to say, well, at least they didn't just leave them to, to starve to death in, the, in their own land.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, if you're, if you're engaging in an apologetic endeavor, that's fine. But you, what, what you can't do is try to mitigate the, the impact of how bad one thing was by saying it could have been a worse
1: thing. Yeah. That's
2: that's just that's that's an absurdity.
1: Yeah. And it it does not make the awful thing less awful. Right. It's just identifying a worse thing out there. Right. And exactly. you know, there's there's a there's no suffering that is incomparably bad, that there's there's nothing worse than. You're you're always gonna be able to point to things that could be worse. And it could be worse is not a defense of God uh commanding that you uh, take girls as sex slaves or that you commit genocide against entire ethnic groups. Uh, It's just, it's wrong, period. The, The apologetics that I find more interesting
2: are the ones that make an attempt to just not to excuse... Uh, you know, these actions, but rather to just sort of explain them or to come up with a reason why it might have happened or why they mm-hmm. might have thought of it in the ancient times. Yeah, and I think those are much more interesting and much more honest, at least an honest engagement of sort of the, uh, of, of the text.
1: To some degree, yeah. And, and unfortunately, usually what they end up doing is, this, is then come around and say, so we can still think that this is inspired and that this is of God and that God is, is wholly good. Um, right. and, and no, a God that commands sex slavery or that commands genocide is not good. because And, and here's where there's, there's another apologetic that will try to point out that these things didn't really happen, which is somewhat self-defeating because it's acknowledging that the text is, is fiction— right and And good on you if you can acknowledge that, but usually an apologetic that wants to defend God for genocide is not one that's going to be open to saying that uh, that the text is fiction. But sometimes right. you you do see that argument and and I, I think that's that's a, a, a little more honest, but it still turns the authors into somebody who used the idea of genocide and sex slavery and things like that uh, to kind of pump up. Uh, it's it's a, a fictitious pep rally for Israel to have them thump their chest and say, uh, you know, we were once uh, the big baddies. Yeah, and um, L-
2: look look at how much destruction we can do.
1: Yeah, if we really yeah. put
2: our minds to it, I'm very proud of us. We can we can do. <laughs> it it does seem like this this concept, you know, just this. If we even if we just look at. The destruction of the canaanites as as described in in these uh, in these books. Mm-hmm. It seems like that that is a good enough reason for every Christian to let go of the literal reading of you know the, the the fundamentalist idea that the Bible has to be the literal word of God, every word of it true, every word of it good, yeah. And just see it—at least these parts—as interesting, sort of cultural markers, and in, you know, and and sort of, and uh, they point to what an ancient group of people believed and what they wanted to have happen, and and yeah. and it becomes so interesting. But if you have to hold to it as good. Uh, because it came from the Lord, and there's just no weaseling around the fact that the Lord in these uh, in in these verses said to do something that we can all acknowledge is uh, is not okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, given any other circumstance, it is not okay to do this.
0: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look
2: at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely that's what i'd like to call redacted history i believe that all history no matter how good or bad needs to be told there are wars massacres battles and entire historical events that are just not in our schools history books have you ever heard of mary bowser i didn't think so my name is andre white the host of the redacted history podcast the place where history's forgotten events heroes and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: John Barton wrote a wonderful book called The History of the Bible, and part, uh, a good chunk of the discussion is about how the Bible was interpreted once it was set loose. Once we had the Bible, how did they read it? And he talks about Psalm 137.9. Um, are you familiar with that passage? This is a famous uh, imprecatory psalm. I don't course. even know
2: what imprecatory means.
1: Okay. well, we'll Let alone being familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, from the trustee at RSVUE, uh, happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Mm. And that happy shall they be, uh, the Hebrew is Ashrei, which is translated into Greek in the Septuagint as blessed. This is the word that would be translated as uh, blessed are the peacemakers, okay. blessed are the meek. So this is right. a beatitude. Yeah. So you could say blessed are those who will take your little ones and crush them against a rock. And this is, this is a, a, a very isolated little single passage. And unlike the conquest accounts, which are embedded in the, the entire concept of the historical narrative of the Bible, this is something that could just be kind of plucked out, and, and you could rationalize it away without threatening the foundation of your belief in the historicity of all this stuff. And so Barton talks about how early Christians dealt with this passage, how folks like Origen talked about how um, the little ones here is, and and this is a reference to uh, Babylonian children. So this is post-exile. This is basically a fantasy about getting revenge for the exile. And talks about how Origen says this is a metaphor, and the little ones are your little Babylonian thoughts, your sinful thoughts, and okay. so blessed is the one who takes our little, um, our little neophyte Babylonian thoughts and smashes them against the rock. Uh, to say, blessed are those who destroy their sinful thoughts, and so this, yes. and so you have this in uh, in early Christian uh, kind of renegotiation with the text: how are we going to think about this kind of stuff? And you have it in in some of the Jewish discussion as uh, early Judaism, rabbinical Judaism, as well as talking about. Um, how are we going to reconcile these things with our a, a very, very different ethical framework? And this is something I wanted to make sure we brought up. I mentioned at the beginning that uh, a lot of the, these texts are coming from very ethnocentric viewpoints, a very insular, isolationist, separatist uh, kind of notion of, uh, of the different people and the different states and nations of the world. And then with the exile you had, something unfortunate happen uh, or fortunate depend on your depending on your perspective the the main body of judahites was now outside the land they had no access to their god whose purview was limited to the land they needed to find a way to access god outside of israel and so you have this universalization of adonai that i've argued in print is affected is accomplished rhetorically in Psalm 82 which deposes the gods of the nations and calls on Adonai to rise up and inherit all nations basically becoming the god of all the geo- different geopolitical identities and so now God is available in any nation and now God has direct rule over all the nations which then raises a question uh-oh now every all, all the other nations of the earth are God's subjects so we've got to reconfigure our relationship to all the other nations of the earth. And we have this idea that God has chosen Israel as God's, uh, the, the King James Version says, peculiar people. Mm. And so a lot of Mormons like to think weird people. But peculiar yeah. there is an outdated um, usage of this word that meant unique possession. So Israel is chosen as God's unique possession, even though God has concern for and is responsible for the creation of all the other nations of the earth as well. And so now that we have universalized God, we now need to find a way to understand everybody as being God's responsibility and uh, even offspring and things like that. So then we get, oh, all the nations of the earth will come into the, the holy temple and everybody will be converted, and, uh, and we get kind of the universalist approach of Deuteronomy isaiah and later texts. And so we go from mine, um, this, uh, this isolationist us versus them, to being compelled to find a way to make them fit in our identity. Right. Um, and by the time of the New Testament— We have this idea uh, where all the nations of the earth are are under God and and everybody can just—you just have to change your beliefs. Nothing about your ethnic identity has to change at all. You just—you don't even have to get circumcised anymore. So you just have to, uh, you know, come to Jesus. So um, that's all it takes, yeah. and and I think that's a trajectory from a more isolationist, ethnocentric perspective to one that is more universal and less ethnocentric. Unfortunately, circumstances later incentivize Christians to come up with the idea of skin color as uh, as boundaries of race, and uh, right. had to justify all the things that they had to do. So um, it's well, a vicious cycle. Well, uh,
2: unfortunately, like there's so much of all the things you know this. This idea of genocide, and, you know, we've talked about sort of God commanding genocide. We've talked about the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's when God commits genocide himself. Mm-hmm. What it does, the bad thing about it is that it provides cover for a lot of people to do some very horrible things if yeah. they should choose to. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that's the big danger with, it seems to me, with with taking a literal uh, approach To to these passages.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an unintended consequence of trying to defend genocide is then you rationalize genocide and then it becomes acceptable. And the notion that the Canaanites they were they were evil and so they're better off dead is phenomenally dangerous because then the people that we dehumanize and the people that we dismiss as holy and unilaterally evil, it becomes a lot easier to rationalize their extermination. Right. And so just like we talked previously about the chewed gum and stuff like that, and if we Mm. talk about people that way, we lead them to believe that maybe it's I am better off dead. Maybe this was so important that my life is ruined and I am unredeemable. And so... We have children taking their lives because of these things. Uh, in a very similar way, this rhetoric that strikes me as just an attempt to defend the inerrancy of the Bible and the goodness of God can have this unintended consequence of of making genocide uh an option. In different right, kinds or, of or,
2: or just the killing of evil of, of people that you deem to be evil. Yeah. Uh suddenly that's that's seen as on a good thing. On the table. Yeah, on the table, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, don't kill anybody. Uh, I, don't, it, that, I, think, I think we are going to make this uh, the official position of the Data Over Dogma podcast, which is no matter how evil you think they are, you don't get to go into a country and kill all the people of it.
1: And yeah, and I, I would say even that uh, although some Christian nationalists have recently been um, really hyping the death penalty, I would go so far as to say even the death penalty I think is inappropriate. And um, I don't know if you feel the same, but... I do.
2: I do. I'm anti. Right. I, I like it. So we're, so we're going that far, guys. All right. Yeah. That is uh, the
1: official position of the Data Over Dogma podcast. Boom! There it is.
2: <laughs> Roasted. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> You'll, don't worry. We'll give our, our email address at the end when you want you know, <laughs> to write in angrily at us. Um, should we switch to a, a much sillier
1: uh, topic really quickly? Yeah, let's do. Okay, um, and so we're let's uh, let's do a, a chapter and verse on. Boo!
0: Uh,
2: so where where are we at? Where are we
1: this is this is
2: Jesus is coming to Jerusalem.
1: The triumphal entry we're yeah. we're
2: going we're, we're going to the new testament now we're uh, yeah. we're we're in jesus times
1: and uh and our friend needs a ride <laughs> so we're in we're in matthew 21 jesus is uh coming in and in fulfillment of this uh prophecy that we have um and let me just pull up the text so i make sure i don't misquote anything uh that would be zechariah yeah, Zechariah nine, 9 yeah. Is, is the prophecy, and so in fulfillment of this, which reads, uh, your king is coming to you unassuming and seated on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew is the, the gospel author who is most concerned to present Jesus as fulfilling Hebrew Bible prophecy to a fault, <laughs> meaning that... Matthew will tell the story, even if it's told differently in his source, and Mark was likely one of the sources that Matthew used. Matthew will tell the story so as to make it fulfill prophecy, even if it is ludicrous. And so (laughs) when we look at Zechariah 9.9, we have a bit of poetic parallelism. He's seated on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is actually just apposition. This is kind of poetic apposition. Uh, seated on a donkey, that is to say, right. a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's repeating and giving more information. Yeah. Now, whether or not the author of Matthew was confused by the Greek translation and understood this as just a simple conjunction um. Matthew tells the story in a peculiar way, and it's kind of hidden in some translations. Um, mm. Let me open up the King James Version. Okay, so in verse 7, uh, so so Jesus says to them, um, hey, go, uh, go into this village. You're going to find a donkey and a colt tied up. Untie him and bring him to me. And uh and and you can see the you can imagine the disciples kind of looking <laughs> hesitantly at each other and Jesus saying, Don't worry, if anybody says anything, just say the Lord needs them and wave your hand like that and say, Um, these, you know, these are not these aren't the, 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 the animals that for. you are in need of right now. <laughs> um and then it says this took place to fulfill what has been spoken through the prophet, and then we get Zechariah 9:9. 9, 9. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Yeah. So the King James Version tweaks this a little bit. It says uh, they brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. So Ah. now, now the Greek preposition is unambiguous. It literally says on them, which means Matthew is describing Jesus riding two animals at the same time into Jerusalem. And the King James Version has obscured that a little bit.
2: Can I offer two two ways that this comes up in my head? Because I love (laughs) both of them. Yeah. The first way that this happens in my brain is it's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen in a rodeo where somebody will ride two horses at the same time. Except a foot that on he's got saddle, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except that he has to do it like uneven bars style, with one with <laughs> yeah. one knee like raised up high because he's on yeah. a, a, a a colt and a donkey. That's one fun way of looking at it. But my favorite way of looking at it is he rides side saddle on the big one, and the little one is just his donkey ottoman. But he just puts yeah. his he just puts his feet up on, and then they they march in that way.
1: So that the, the latter conceptualization of this event is actually how some christian artists depicted this cuz you can find paintings of jesus <laughs> sitting on side saddle on a, a big donkey with his feet <laughs> resting on a small donkey so the i i think the third way is is uh, the one i need to see in a painting though and that is where they take the the smaller one and put it on top of the big one. Oh, so it's like, a, on oh, it's like, oh, yeah. a, it's like, a, it's
2: you, you got like a, a, a pyramid thing going yeah,
1: on. Yeah, I haven't seen that depicted anywhere. That's what I want to <laughs> see. Oh, but. I just found it on Reddit.
2: <laughs> somebody's done it on Reddit. I like it. Oh, there's another one where, where, like, somebody's, like, put a board between the two animals, and he's sitting on, he's writing
1: on the board. He's sitting on the board? Oh, okay. and how does he not slide off? Do they make the animals the same size? Yeah, they're the same size in this okay. one. Okay. Yeah, All so right. they're are they're, they're already messing with the uh, with the scriptures, <laughs> tergiversating the scriptures. If you, uh, I use that word every now and then, and every time it like people are like, I did not know that word existed, um, what, and what the is only it? Re- tergiversate. And that means that to it it means uh, basically to intentionally misinterpret or to twist or pervert oh, okay. your interpretation of something. And the only reason I know about it is because I used it all the time when I was a missionary because it's a more common word in Spanish. Oh, okay. And so I I was like I I come back to the states and I was like is this a word in English? And I looked it up and it is and I was like, "Okay, good. I'm I can use this word." Um, <laughs> you guys are like, "You gotta, you
2: guys don't have that one?" That's oh, okay.
1: Yeah, that's, that's too bad. So,
2: so what do the other? We've got Matthew doing this. What are the other? Uh, right. they,
1: uh, just, uh, they just they just mention a single cult. Okay. Yeah. So, piece of cake. It's yeah. uh, and because they're not either they were not worried about trying to describe this in a way that exactly matched their reading of of Zechariah nine nine, or uh, they were just. Uh, you know, pick, uh, Mark was the first one to say it to tell it, and he just says a cult. And so Luke is probably just like, I don't know what works for me smoking, but yeah, we're just gonna go with a cult. Um, so, and, and interestingly, this is one where, um, for any Latter day Saints in the audience, the Joseph Smith revision, mm. uh, changes it to a cult. So, okay. Um, yeah, got, uh, go. got got one right by harmonizing with uh, the other two gospels. Yeah. But yeah, th- this is one of the examples where uh where Matthew I think twists the story a little bit to make it fit a little better with this rhetorical goal of having Jesus uh fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And and you see something similar in the in the death of Judas as well because he says this was um to fulfill this this prophecy. Right. uh where Jude, the the story of Judas's death is very different from the story told in Acts 1 and it's because Matthew wants it to fit uh the uh prophecy rather than just tell the story as it probably came down to him sure
2: okay well i mean it's just a silly story and that <laughs> i what i love about this is that it's so fine you know what i mean if if the if the author of Matthew just was yeah, like you say, got a little uptight about making sure that it matched with what he read in Zechariah, and and got uh, and and made it a little weird. That's okay, so long as n- this doesn't have to be an inerrant book. Yeah, it's it's just the work of a guy who was trying to do a thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but. but but it does present a real problem. Again, like like I think that's the thing that th- the theme that we keep bumping up against as a as a show is that like if you're trying to make this a literally true, uh inerrant book, you're it's just order. You're just in trouble. There's just <laughs> yeah. the, you're just you're going to have to write novel length uh explanations of why it's okay
1: and also explanations that just make up data and right. scenarios and stuff like i've i've seen attempts to try to reconcile this people um try to argue that oh well the the other one was there but the other are authors they just didn't mention the other one <laughs> right, because, right for whatever reason and well this, mark and, thought it looked dumb so he didn't want
2: to he didn't <laughs> yeah. want to embarrass jesus or whatever well,
1: and here's another way I've seen apologetics make use of the dictionary in a problematic way. They'll look up the word contradiction in the dictionary and they will assert, <laughs> they will assert like the most hard-line definition. And and definition. Um, and one of them, I don't remember what they are off the top of my head, but one that always comes up is this notion that they cannot possibly be reconciled. And so what they understand that to mean is that if there is any possible way Right. That two different passages could be reconciled or harmonized, it's not a contradiction. And what that means is you can run wild with your imagination yeah the The only limit is physical possibility, which means you can have two things that are that are described um, in just totally different ways. But as long as you can imagine and make up scenarios that could render this possible. That means it's not physically impossible. That means it's not a contradiction. That means the text is still univocal. And that is one of the most tortured attempts to try to rationalize away contradictions in the Bible that I have ever seen, leaving aside how much I just hate definitions to begin with. But right. um, <laughs> but it's so silly when—and, you know, you have— uh, the deaths of, of different kings, where it's like one says he was shot with an arrow and died in uh, in Megiddo. And the other said he was caught hiding out in Samaria and killed on the spot. And they're like, well, he could have run off to Samaria with the arrow in him and they caught him. And then they took him back to Megiddo. And then there he died. But then they took him back to Samaria and he buried him in Samaria. And and like there are all kinds of tortured, right. tortured attempts to invent scenarios that are not in evidence just to show that, look, there's a way it could be possible. And um, and my feelings are that if your apologetics are based on, hey, it's not impossible, you're fighting a losing battle, at least to the degree that that battle is aimed beyond the people who already agree with you and are just looking for validation for agreeing with you, if your battle is extending at all beyond that, you are losing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's
2: the point, right? Like, if you've, decided, yeah, if you've yeah. come up with a way that makes it work in your head and it's not hurting anybody else, yeah, I w- I'm added, adding that caveat.
1: But you, usually but, apologists, the apologists who are, are trying to get more out of apologetics, make a living out of it, right. um, are usually trying to perform plausibility. Right. perform a scholarly approach. They want not only to communicate to those who already agree, hey, you are you are validated in agreeing, but they also want to make it seem like, they want to gin up the illusion of plausibility so that the people who agree can say, yeah, look, they're actually Right. Legitimate mainstream scholars and they're saying this which means this is a part of legitimate mainstream scholarship and so this is legitimate scholarship and and so they have to perform valid scholarship. Uh, even that, if it's actually not valid scholarship.
2: And I think that the thing that you said that I think is most salient to that idea is the presentation of facts not in evidence. Like yeah. if you're you you can present all kinds of Ways that you could maybe make it harmonize if you squint a little bit and you turn your head and whatever. But you don't get to call that evidence. You don't get to call that uh, a reason to believe your position. Yeah. That's a reason why your position may not be impossible. But that's not a reason to believe it. You're not presenting right. anything that is that is useful in convincing someone
1: else. It's not a positive argument for plausibility, probability, certainty. Right. It's just defense against impossibility. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, maybe they have defense against impossibility professors at these, uh, against at, the uh, dark the Bible arts. college. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe they have those, yeah. uh, maybe they have plant roots that they use to try to gin up <laughs> scenarios that aren't in evidence. But, um, but yeah, that, that's not, that's not scholarship. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you everybody for joining us on
2: the data over dogma <laughs> show. We're very fond of data here. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you would like to uh, become a part of making this show go, as well as receive access to an early ad-free version of every episode, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash data over dogma. If you'd like to reach us, you can do so. Contact at data over is the email address. Other than that, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you again next week.
1: Bye, everybody. Data
2: Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC, copyright 2023, all rights reserved.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.